terrible things that happen to the Jewish people in our history, unfortunately. But we don't have a lot of fast days to commemorate them. We, how many, I think we have six fasts throughout the year. And many of them are associated with the temple, with, with the destruction of the temple, either the siege that was... What's it called when you surround a city? A siege, right? So either the siege that was laid or the walls being broken or the actual temple being destroyed. And then we have a fast of Gedalia, which was when the last remaining group of Jewish people after the destruction were, um, were killed and then exiled. That's another fast. So like four out of the six fasts that we have are commemorating something to do with the destruction of the temple. And it's very interesting because it's very connected to what we're learning. We're learning very much, we're gonna discuss it today inside actually, just the big difference between life in the time of the temple and life afterwards. Like this affects us today. Um, there are so many things that happened in our history that were commemorated. There were many fasts that were actually, that the Jewish people fasted, that became annulled morning because you know, first of all, we can't fast every day of the year, and we can unfortunately find something that happened every day of the year. But also, because we only commemorate that which has a relevant impact on us, that has basically a timeless impact. And so these steps towards the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash have an impact on us. And we're actually go, we're discussing one of those impacts, which is how differently the life challenges look now that we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. In the time when we did, as we're going to see inside today, as we discussed outside yesterday, yesterday, I think, when you would put in the effort in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, you would put in the effort, you would see the reward. It was very, very clear, God's hand in the picture. And so the struggle was, people still suffered. People still didn't, there were people still who were poor, right? There were people who lost, um, you know, who, who lost family members and who, who, who dealt with difficult times. But the day-to-day -day struggle of life was just not on the same level at all. And so, we are mourning that, you know, like the fact that we're fasting today. Our life today is impacted by these steps that happened thousands of years ago. Um, so it's just interesting because, again, there are many things that happened to the Jewish people that we don't, we don't fast about, even though there were terrible, horrific things that happened. Um, but, but things that have to do with the temple directly relate to us today. So that's one of the reasons that whoever is fasting today, really good luck. It's a long one. <laughs> I think it ends at like 8 something 8:30 in south africa <laughs> in south africa it's winter so the these fasts like tishabab this time like of year they finished like really early in south africa um so i was always remember them as the short fasts but then you come here and it's like no no it's the summer um so good luck with that and hopefully you'll have some teachers who know a bit better history to to explain a little bit more and um, we're going to continue inside I think we're on page 12, 2512. <laughs> what we call Gehenna, and then being able to go into heaven, into Gan Eden, and to get the rewards and the pleasure that exist in that world. And so today we're going to be taking that idea and putting it into, back into that question, why did the flood have to happen, and why do we have these day-to-day -day challenges of life that are so distracting um, from our service of God? And... So now the Alter Rebbe is going to caveat and just make a point, which I began at the end of last class, which was this concept of what we call Shia Bud, 
right? The slavery idea, again, we, it's not the idea that we have to pay taxes to somebody, that we are indebted to somebody higher than us. There's, gov- there's a government over us or there's a king, whatever time period we're in. That's not what we mean when we say shiabud, as we've discussed, but rather we mean the fact that it's just a challenge to, it's a challenge to make money in a way that it wasn't in the time of the temple. So let's just see that idea that we did speak about outside. Let's see it inside, and then we're going to continue into the next idea. So this is almost like a little parenthesis, uh, even though it's not in parentheses. So again, 25, the Hine Shiabud. So this idea of what we called Shiabud, which we've also called Mayim Rabim, the many waters, the challenges of making money. Ein HaPerosh, it does not mean Mashiyesh Aleinu Atamelech, the fact that now we have a king over us or a government over us. And that he takes taxes from us. Because you could think, oh, we're slaves because if someone is taking taxes from us, he's telling us what to do, right? That's not what we mean here. Because also in the time of the temple, we had a Jewish king, right? The first person to build the temple was King Solomon, right? And then throughout the time of the temple period, there were kings. The Hamas and they, they took a lot of tax from the Jewish people at that time. Kiyadua, as is known, Shachelik Asiri, Hutzrach, Kolechad Liten, that uh, everyone had to give 10% of their income in tax to, to the Jewish king, which was more than in the time of the Alter Rebbe, I guess, the tax that they had to give then. We have to give a lot more than 10% now. Ella um, Kavanahi. So, Shiabud, Maim Rabbim, these challenges are not referring to the fact that we have to pay taxes, that we have a king over us, that we have government, that we have laws telling us what to do. Rather, what is the meaning? In the time when the Beit HaMikdash existed, there was a tremendous amount of abundance and blessing that was drawn down onto the Jewish people. To the point that the land of Israel, Haita, was called Eretz Zavat Chalav Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey, which we discussed yesterday, what that means, date, Date, uh, date honey, which we call silan, and goat's milk was so abundant that it was literally flowing together in a river down the mountain. So it's called the land flowing with milk and honey. Shelo al which is not according to nature at all. That's not normal for dates to be so luscious that they drip honey and for goats to be so full of milk that it just flows out of them. This is not a normal phenomenon. As is written in the Talmud, there were no worries and challenges about making a living whatsoever in the time of the temple. That didn't exist. You had to work. You had to work. But if you worked, you were, set, you were sorted in an unnatural way. You put some effort in and your goats just, they just gave you milk, right? Um, it wasn't a natural phenomenon. The Atah, however, now, and again, this is where we really see where also the fast comes in today. This is the step-by-step process of our lives completely changing and us entering into the state of exile. Every single person has yegiot, worries, v'tirdot, and is occupied with making a living. And he is required to invest himself into this physical world. We can't say, I'm going to wake up in the morning and work for an hour and then go and learn Torah for the rest of the day. We won't survive that way. The whole, and the reason is because the world now works according to nature. The Jewish people's lives in the time of the Beit HaMikdash do not work according to nature. 
put a little bit of effort in and you were completely taken care of. There was obvious, what's called shefa, obvious abundance that flowed down into the Jewish people. But since the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, we need to involve ourselves in making a living. We need to involve ourselves in the physical realities around us. And that is That is what we're talking about when we speak about the many waters that we can sometimes feel that we're drowning in. Which are also called the waters of the flood in the time of Noah. Which can also be translated as the waters of rest. Which we still need to kind of understand now. How can these challenges be called waters of rest? Right, and so we've already started to introduce this idea, but now the Alter Rebbe is going to say that, based on everything we've understood so far with the analogies, we can see that the fact that our soul leaves its um, perfect, tranquil state up in heaven to come down into a physical body and be challenged by the challenges of the physical world, it's allowing the soul to reach a level that it could never have reached if it hadn't come down here. It's giving it a completely new way of relating to God that's a lot deeper, that's a lot more honest, that's a lot more real. And he can never achieve that if it hadn't come down specifically into the world and dealt with the challenges. So it says here, Lefi, because, why are these many challenges called waters of peace, waters of rest? That through us facing these Mayim these many waters, dealing with the challenges of life, the soul, the godly soul, gets raised up to an even higher level from before it had invested itself in the body. So our souls will start off in very, very high levels of godliness and spirituality up above. They descend into this world. They have to deal with challenges that seem on the surface to be completely distracting us from our service of God and missing the point almost. But actually, when we're able to face those challenges come out and come out with an intact relationship with God and remember God within all of the distraction and the struggle and the feel, feeling of drowning, our soul gets raised up to a level higher than it had started out in heaven. So it, it literally goes higher up. Okay? And what does that mean? It goes higher up. Every level, so to speak, that you go up in godliness means more um, revelation of God more capacity, more vessel to be able to experience the truth of God. Because every time you go down a level, you experience less and less of the truth of God. And every time you go up a level, you experience more and more of the truth of God. God is a little bit less concealed and you are a little bit more of a vessel to receive that light. And somehow this process of the soul descending into a complete state of darkness where it doesn't see God almost at all, and yet looking for God and finding God in those moments that allows the soul to be able to experience God in a way more powerful way. Um, so let's see that. It says here, Before it came down, it was only, not really only, but it was limited to a level where it was enjoying the rays of God's Shekhinah. So I'm going to just explain for a moment here, and then we'll continue with the, the, the quotes from the sages about this idea. So the soul, there's a difference between, between God and godliness, okay? Can anyone think about like what, what would be the difference? You've heard of the term godliness. In Yiddish it's called getlichkeit. And then there's God, there's Hashem. Hashem means the name because we don't really have a name for God. We don't truly understand him. But there's God and there's godliness. What would be the difference? Godliness might be how 
it, um, how it, like, how God is, like, manifested into, like, more tangible things? Yeah. Yeah. Godliness is the way that God relates to the world. Okay? And there's many, many different... And it's, it's God, but it's certain tools that God utilizes, what's called the Ten Sephirot, which, according to the philosophers, are tools, and according to the Kabbalists, are natural emanations of God, just like the, the rays of the sun automatically shine out from the sun. So it's, it's natural expressions, so to speak, of God. It's expressions of God, or it's tools of God, depending if you're a philosopher or a Kabbalist. Hasidus goes according to the Kabbalists. Um, so godliness is the idea of rays of God that are present in this world and, so to speak, making things happen, the way that God relates to us and re- relates to the world. God means God himself. God as he relates to himself. We can call that sometimes essence as well. Essence means something as it relates to itself, not something as it relates to something outside of itself. So that would be God. And the soul, before it comes down, it's basking in the rays of the Shekhinah. It's basking in rays of godliness. It's grasping concepts and uniting with godliness, with the expressions of God within this world, which is a very powerful level. We don't experience that down here. So we shouldn't like, uh, you say in Hebrew, mezalzel. How do you say in English? Um, say mezalzel, like put it down. There's probably a better word, but we shouldn't put, down, put that down. It's pretty high up. Imagine we can look around us and fully see the way that God's, God is moving things around us, right? And in a truly felt, sensed way. So that is the experience that the soul is having up above, depending on the root level of the soul and the previous lives of the soul, life cycles, etc. There's different experiences of this godliness, depending on where it's found. But it's experiencing godliness, okay? It's not God himself. It's God as he expresses himself into the physical world. When we come down here, and then we say, we come down here, we face challenges, we're confronted by darkness, we don't see God, and then we seek out God in little spaces and little moments and pockets of time. The altar is going to bring the idea that you spend your whole day making a living, and then you set aside a few minutes to go and pray, which is the idea of cultivating a personal relationship with God. Those few moments, we're touching God himself, we're reaching God. We're not reaching these levels of godliness where and that's the idea when we say that the soul reaches a higher level than it will, would reach if it stayed up above because up above not only the souls the angels as well they're perceiving godliness certain aspects and characteristics of god as he relates to the world which is powerful and it's incredible and we should all strive to find those moments for ourselves but what we say when we mean what we mean when we say that the soul's getting an elevation. What does that mean? Okay, it's going like one, one step up the rank. Like it's always ascending. But we're saying it completely skips this process of ascending the levels of godliness and it touches God himself. And our soul comes from God himself. Our soul is a piece of God. It's part of this essence. And so it's really returning to who it really is in those moments. And that is only possible by descending down into this world. If the soul would stay above, it can go up and up and up because there are infinite levels of godliness. So it could just keep going up. And it, it does, by the way. Like souls that have passed on, Avraham Avinu, he's been in heaven for, I don't know, history, like 3,000 years. How long ago did Avraham Avinu live? 
more than 3,000 years ago. And every single day, the soul gets an aliyah. Every single Shabbat, the soul gets an aliyah. Every single uh, anniversary of death, what's called a yard site, the soul gets an aliyah. So Avram Avinu right now is like on such a high level, we can't even imagine. But he is experiencing godliness. Okay? There's always more and more you can go up in the rungs of godliness, in the rungs of heaven and spirituality. What happens when we descend into this world is that we're touching God himself. Okay? And we'll, dis- we'll continue to discuss this idea as we progress inside. But it's just, it was always something I didn't, okay, so the soul starts up on a high level, comes down here, then goes to a higher level. Like, okay, nice, but maybe you should just stay there and like, and just keep going up in levels that way. Like what? So, so it, it clicked for me um, a little bit more recently that it's not, it's not that it's just going up another level. It's completely going to a whole different way of relating to God and having a relationship with him. It's a completely new way of, of doing that. And it's one of a relationship with God himself. And so what's the difference between God and godliness? Godliness is the way God relates to the world. It's very powerful levels of God and expressions of him. And God is the way that he relates to himself. It's God as he is. And... God's purpose for creating the world was that we can slowly make a place for him to express himself as he is, to be who he is truly down here within our reality. So every single time we face a challenge and yet find God within that, we're touching God himself. We're making more space for God himself to be present in this world. So we're going to bring some quotes from the sages that really emphasize this point now. So, so far we said, because through these many waters, the divine soul becomes elevated to a higher level of connection to Hashem that it had before it was invested in the body, when it only had enjoyment from the radiance of the Shekhinah, okay? Which again, the radiance of the Shekhinah is a powerful level of God, but it's not God himself. As our sages have said, good morning. As our sages have said, Yafa Shah Achat, it is preferable... One moment, but tshuva umasim tovim, of returning to who we really are, tshuva. Tshuva doesn't mean repentance, actually. It means returning. Umasim tovim, good deeds. But olam hazeh, in this physical world, mikol chayei ha'olam haba, from the entire life of the world to come. So this is from Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. One minute of tshuva and good deeds in this world is better than all of the life of the world to come. And based on what we just said, we can understand why that is. Because we, when we return to who we truly are within the chaos and the distraction of life down here, when we do good deeds and we utilize the physicality around us to, for God, we're touching God. And that is better than the entire world to come. Because the entire world to come, no matter what infinite levels you can reach there, it's godliness, it's expressions of God. Is that, sorry, is that saying that your actual act of should be like such a high level? Or does that mean that... Like up in the you know spiritual realm, your soul's actually feeling. Do you know what I mean? I think I think I understand the question, but my question is like, what's my what's the point of me wanting to come go to the world to come if doing to right now? Ah, that's a good question. So that's basically you. I think you just answered it because we don't feel what we're doing down here. We don't experience the impact of that true. We don't feel the fact that every time we do a good deed or we return to who we really are, that we're touching God. If we did, we wouldn't have free choice and we do it all the time. <laughs> so God took that experience away from us. However, as you said, our soul above gets to experience and appreciate what was truly going on down here. And then the ultimate experience of that is going to be when Mashiach comes. It's the ultimate culmination. We're going to be able to truly 
understand and experience on a tangible level all of the things that we accomplished in the exile. We're accomplishing tremendous, tremendous things right now, but we don't feel them. And the next one we're going to learn is going to elaborate a little bit on that and the power of actually not, not feeling um, and what, it, what that enables, the space that that opens up. But for now, what's important to know is that when we go to heaven, that's the pleasure. The, I'll get to a second. The pleasure and the reward that we experience in the world to come is actually experiencing that which we accomplished down here. And that will ultimately be experienced while we're in our own bodies, while we're in this world when Mashiach comes. Yeah, isn't it the, the reward for the mitzvah is the mitzvah? Exactly. You feel the mitzvah you exactly. The reward for the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. It's not that we're trying to get to another level through it. It's not a stepping stone. The reward for the mitzvah is the connection we have with God in that moment, which only later we can actually appreciate and, and tangibly feel. You had a question? Yeah, can you speak to the, there was like a weird sect of Jews who used to like say that they should just do a bunch of bad things? So they could do more tshuva? I've never heard of them, actually. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I never heard of these people. Um, the Gemara does speak to some a, a person who thinks that way. Okay. Um, they say that if somebody um, says, ashuv, ashuv, I will sin and then I will repent, I'll sin and then I'll repent, they're not going to be forgiven. And speaking, uh, it's, I think it's discussed Masechet Yuma and the idea of... Um, of Yom Kippur, that everything is forgiven of you on Yom Kippur. But somebody who purposely sets out to sin, saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask God for forgiveness later. The truth is, the Rebbe's perspective is that it doesn't matter what you do, what your intentions were, you can always actually, you can always do teshuva. But there is a, an opinion in the Gemara that on those sins you can't do teshuva because you, you plan them by saying, oh, I'm going to do it now and then I'm just going to ask God to forgive me. So there isn't really a place for that. Um, it's more retroactively. So, for example, if somebody, as we discussed, we, remember we discussed the three levels. Um, there's the holiness, Kedusha. There's Klipat Noga. There's the neutral Klipa, right? The physicality around us. And then there's Gimel Klipat Atmeot. That which are the three unholy, unholy Klipot. So if somebody, for example, non-kosher food would be considered unholy Klipot. So let's say somebody takes a, a cheeseburger, okay? And they say, okay, I am going to eat this cheeseburger and then I'm going to repent afterwards and then through my repentance I'm going to be able to elevate the cheeseburger. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Like, there's nothing that you can do. Um, there's, there's a term called lechatchila and bedievet. Lechatchila means initially and bedievet means retroactively. Initially, there's nothing you can do to elevate that burger. There's just nothing you can do. But retroactively, if you did eat the burger for whatever reason, that you were raised that way or something happened or whatever, it's just to look too delicious. And then afterwards you say, oh my gosh, like, I really, I do regret that and I'm not going to do it again. You're actually retroactively able to, when you do that, you're elevating the burger, basically. So if you initially plan it that way, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But if it happens retroactively, then, then it does. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. so, so that's the idea that there's certain things that we can't, we can't say, I'm going to elevate that by dealing with it. Like, I'm going to go into this situation and I'm going to make everyone religious. It's like some situations just don't go into. But if you already found yourself in that situation and now you're like looking back on it and you realize the fact that I was in that situation gave me such a drive towards wanting a relationship with God, which many times that happens, I found myself in certain situations and they pushed me towards wanting to have a deep connection with God. Those situations ended up being stepping stones toward your relationship to God and they become elevated in that process. The idea is that, um, yeah, what, is that, it was a bit of a tangent, but yeah. So, so back to this idea that one moment of good deeds and teshuva in this world is surpasses the entire experience of the world to come. We experience the pleasure of those actions in the world to come, 
But the truth is that it's even more powerful, that moment of, of that action. Yeah. So we can call it also Gun Eden. Have you heard of the Garden of Eden? So it's, there's actually, there's two, there's two ways that the World to Cup can be used. Either the Garden of Eden or the future times of redemption of Mashiach. So they're actually used interchangeably. And so I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, right now we're speaking about the world to come as in heaven, the experience of heaven and Gan Eden. Um, and sometimes the world to come is used as, as the times of Mashiach. Okay. And so now it's going to add another idea, which it comes up a lot in Chassidus. The idea, Lefi, this is because one moment of Teshuva is more powerful than the whole Gan Eden and the whole heaven heavenly experience because we're on page 13 it's the idea of the advantage of light that comes specifically from darkness has anyone heard this idea before the advantage of light that comes from darkness it's an idea that's spoken about many times in Hasidus and it's speaking about this idea what is darkness darkness is the absence of the revelation of God and when we come down into this world, we experience darkness. We don't experience the revelation of God. And that's, again, one of the things that we're mourning today, literally, the fact that the temple was destroyed. In the time of the temple, we did experience the revelation of God, and now we do not. We're in a state of darkness. But when we find God and we seek him out, when we return to who we really are within that state of darkness, the light that's created from that process, the light that comes from darkness, mm -hmm. the seeking out of God that we never would have experienced if we hadn't been in darkness in the first place, is a much more powerful light than if it had been total revelation. So the power of the light that comes from darkness. It's also used in the context, it's from Kohelet, which is a book also that King Solomon wrote. And the idea is that like when you turn on, um, when you, when it's a pitch black room and you light a candle, right? The candle just like takes away the darkness. So there's a, when you're, when you're in a dark room, you appreciate the light a lot more, right? So that's really, that's the like simple context of what it's talking about there. Uh, King Solomon said, I have appreciated the, um, I have appreciated wisdom over foolishness, like appreciating light over darkness. But Hasidus takes it to another level and says specifically the light that comes from the darkness, the experience of God that comes from the fact that we didn't experience him, the seeking and the yearning for God that comes from the fact that we don't see him is a relationship with God that's way surpasses uh, light that was always turned on. A relationship that was more obvious, like the soul in heaven has an obvious relationship with God. The angels have more obvious relationship with God. But again, they have a relationship with God that's based on how they perceive godliness, not God himself. So Shehu Bechinat Iskafia, we reach this level through what's called Iskafia, Sitra Achra, through bending the other side. We'll discuss what that is in a second. The Ishapcha Chashucha Lenahara and transforming the darkness into light. Before I go into this, are we clear so far? Okay, so let's speak a little bit about Iskafia and Ishapcha. These are two concepts that I brought a lot in Tanya. You might be familiar with them if you've learned Tanya before, um, but they also come up a lot in the Hasidus. How do we get to this place of transforming the darkness into light? Because the danger of the, the, danger of the setup that God made for us down here is that there are some people who can go through their entire lives because of this darkness without ever knowing that there's a God, without ever having some sort of intimate experience with him. So how, so how are we supposed to actually find the light within the darkness? How are we supposed to turn to God from challenges where they just conceal his presence on a constant basis? And the idea is that it's a two-step process. 
the first process is what's called iskafia. And iskafia means to bend. Lakfof like, like, like in modern Hebrew means to bend down. It's the idea of bending the sitrach. What's a sitrach? A sitrach literally means the other side, that which conceals the truth of God, that which shouts, I exist on my own, God didn't create me, I'm here by myself. Um, so when we take an experience or a challenge that is screaming to us, there's no God here. Like, you've got to figure this out all by yourself, right? And we say to this experience or act out in a way that says, I'm not going to give in to this reality that you're screaming at me in this moment. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of an example. For some reason, it's not coming. Um, okay, should we go back to the cheeseburger? <laughs> Let's go back to the cheeseburger. Um, I'm thinking about cheeseburger because in Hatch, they sell, my brother was just got like a, they have like a fake, fake cheese and it's like all things. So I'm thinking about cheeseburger. Um, he was like telling me about it. So, okay. So there's a cheeseburger in front of you and the cheeseburger says, I'm delicious. You're hungry. There's nothing else to eat right now. Like, I'm the only real thing that exists right now. Eat me, okay? And your body is saying, I'm hungry, and this looks good. This is what I need. This is fuel. And so the reality around you is basically what we call citra or the other side. It's screaming to you, um, you know, this is what is real. And so maybe in like the back of your mind, there's like, back, back, back. Okay, well, God doesn't really want me to do that. But the, your, the, the present experience from your body and from your surroundings, and maybe let's say you're at lunch with someone, so the person next to you is like, is all screaming to you, eat the cheeseburger, that's what's real. The moment you say, I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to wait 10 minutes, or I'm going to think about it. The moment you take that back of your head voice and say, wait, wait, but there's like, there's God here in the picture. That's called iskafia. That's bending what's called the sitra akhra. It's saying, you claim that you're the only real truth. I'm not truly believing you in this moment. Maybe I'll believe you soon. Maybe I'll give in at some point. But in this moment right now, I'm not believing you. And the moment we do that, we bend its own reality because the truth is that it doesn't actually um, exist on its own. Leta, were you here when we spoke about this idea? I'm trying to remember which mimer it was. Was it the shalach mimer, I think? Um, I think it was the shalach mimer where we really spoke about this idea a bit more in depth. Um, anyone who stays next year, we get into this idea a lot more. But, but, but the idea really is that when we're bending, what does it mean when we're bending the unholiness? We're saying, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're the only thing that exists right now. So whatever that experience is, it could be a thought that comes up that's, 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 um, that we say, we push it aside for a moment, we say, I'm going to get back to you later. The moment we say, because basically, Sitra Akhra, Kalipa as we call it, it doesn't really exist. Everything is God. Like, absolutely everything is God. But its job is to convince you that it exists. And that's all it really is. It's a, it's a, it's a method of like alluring you by convincing you that this is what's true and this is what's real. So the moment you say, mm, I'm not so convinced, its whole facade basically disappears because it isn't anything, it doesn't really have true substance. And so that's the idea of this kafia. We're bending it, we're saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna believe everything you're saying right now in this moment. And then ishapcha is the next level. Ishapcha means transformation. When you've completely, either you've transformed that which is in front of you, the cheeseburger, by not eating it, or yourself, by, by yourself by not eating it. When you, when you truly don't give in to things enough, you get to a point where your experience of the world has been transformed and where you experience around you the reality that this is actually God. 
because you've transformed the Sitra Achra into the truth for what it is, which is that everything is actually God. So what it's, would you define that word as or translate it? Ishapcha? Yeah. So it's from the Hebrew word lahafoch, which means to turn over, and it's the idea that something's transformed. So we can have like we can have a physical thing in front of us that says, I exist on my own, you should, you know, I, I, I am the only true real experience and thing. So it's, Kafia would be, I don't really believe you. Like, maybe, I, I believe you a little bit, but not fully. Like, there's something, I'm going to take a step back, I'm going to wait a little bit, there's doubt there. And then Ishabcha means, I've completely, I completely experienced this thing as just being God, because everything is God. Okay. It's a completely transformed experience. Ishabcha is, is like the next level, and there's some opinions that say that, that when we truly get to this level, it's an experience of a tzaddik. It's like a very high level where the, the physicality around us has completely been transformed and we experience it in the way of its reality, which is that it's all God. We're usually in the ishapcha, in the iskafya stage basically our whole life. If you've learned about the difference between a benoni and a tzaddik, a benoni is somebody who's just constantly doing iskafya because the world and its instincts, its instincts within itself and the world around it is saying this is true and you're constantly kind of fighting back and saying no it's not so true maybe it's not so true maybe i'll wait a little bit maybe i'll push back ishabcha means that your experience of the world is already that of truth so we're kind of in this kafya stage but every single time we bend what we call the klipa a little bit we bring god into our experience even in a moment we're bringing light out of the darkness and that light is god himself we're touching god in that moment and that we can only do specifically by overcoming challenges and living in this physical world. Basi Lagani chapter 7. Which Basi Lagani? The first one? There's like 21. I know. Um, did you learn the, the, the Rebbe's first one or the, the Friedeke Rebbe's? Who did you learn Basi Lagani with, by the way? With the Yehudis? Um, yeah. Okay, very cool. It wasn't the Friedeke So it was Rebbe's first one, probably. Okay, so chapter seven. Speak specifically about this idea of iskafia. You have notes on it. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Um, I think I'm still figuring, like, trying to figure out the difference between godliness and God Himself. So, in that moment when um, you realize that God is truth and reality, um, why is that God Himself rather than godliness? Because God, it's a very good question. Godliness is a felt experience of God. So depending on how much godliness you're experiencing, you're experiencing more of that revelation or less. It's like the light, we call it. Whenever we speak about the light of God, that's the idea of the godliness of God. Like, well, in that case, God would be the sun and then the light and the rays that express his heat and his warmth to the world would be godliness. So depending how close or far away you are from the sun, you're going to experience more or less heat or more or less of the impact of the sun. When we don't feel anything, <laughs> that's God. So we have experience of, of godliness within our own lives. When we're learning Torah, that's an experience of godliness. We're feeling something for God. We're getting excited. God took his light and he invested it into the Torah, right? Um, but when we confront challenges, there's no godliness. There. Obviously, there's godliness there because godliness brings everything into existence and runs the world. But when we don't experience any of that, and yet we still choose God, we're not choosing him because of his light, because there's no light there, it's just dark. We're choosing him because of him. And the Alter Rebbe had a very famous quote he used to say all the time, which was, I don't want your Olam Haba. I don't want your Gan Eden. All I want is you. 
And that's really what Hasidus comes to really teach us, right? It's this expression that the altar used to say again and again and again, that actually when we're in the darkness, the light that we find from there, that's God. It's a lot less... <laughs> It's interesting. It's a lot less powerful of an experience to reach God than to reach godliness. God is like, he's here. He's here right now. God himself is here right now, but we don't feel him. He's very quiet. He's unassuming, right? Godliness comes in flashes and bursts and inspirations and miracles and even the nature that we see around us that is pretty wondrous. That's loud. That's godliness. God is quiet. God doesn't need to prove himself. (laughs) He's just here. So... It's hard to reach him, but when we do reach him, again, it doesn't come in flashes of lightning and bolts of lightning and like crazy experiences. It's a quiet moment and we don't appreciate the significance of it. And again, if we would appreciate the significance of it, we would only want to serve God. But if we wanted to serve God, we can't truly understand what God is. So the wanting to be one with God, we're almost wanting to be one with godliness, wanting to be one with what we understand and perceive about God, which are really only expressions of him. But when we just go through our day-to-day life, and then we take moments, even though we don't really understand why, why we don't truly feel the depth of the experience and we choose God anyway, we're choosing God. So like the angels, they have very, very deep feelings for God. But no one can truly have deep feelings for God because we don't know what God is. Angels don't know what God is. What do they have deep feelings for? For godliness, for either God's kindness or God's, um, you know, God's love or God's awe, oh, his chesed or his gavur, depending on what angel it is. And they are very passionate, either intellectually passionate or, or emotionally angels are, but they're passionate about godliness. We are not passionate at all about anything. And yet... In the, and, and when we are passionate, it's usually about godliness, what we perceive to be God, which is important. We should try and understand God to the, to the ability that we can. But when we're just, it's just a really hard day. We just had a really, really hard day. And we didn't see God's hand in any of it, because that's usually what makes it a hard day. When you see God's hand in it, it's a good day. We didn't see how God is playing a role here at all. And then we take 20 minutes and we say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to cultivate my personal relationship with God, which is what prayer is. It's that time to take all of those things that we've been doing and say, now let's make it personal. We pray. And then this is chapter two is going to go into a meditation, what we think about when we pray. And we truly appreciate the depth of what God is from all of the concealment around us. We take time to think about God. That we, 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 um, we touch God and sometimes we even can experience a yearning for God himself, which is already a very high level because the angels, they want, they, they want godliness, right? Our souls want godliness. We, when we appreciate just how far away we are from God because we have no revelation, we end up wanting God. And even in that experience of wanting, that's, what, that's the next chapter we're going to speak about next week. That experience of enabling us to want God himself only comes through the challenges. And wanting God is almost as much sometimes even more powerful than actually having him so we'll get to that we'll get to that next week that's going to be chapter two but chapter one is really just emphasizing this idea that there is an advantage to the flood it was a purification process there's an advantage to the purification process that the soul has to go through before getting to heaven and there's an advantage to the day-to-day challenges and concealments of god within the world the darkness around us any questions or comments on what we've learned so far on chapter one we're good? Okay. So have an easy fast for those of you who are fasting. Bahatslacha. And um, we'll continue next week. Hopefully by then we'll have the Besamikdash already. 
We'll be learning in the Beis Hamikdash. I think it's time. What do you guys think? Yes. I think it's time. It should be the last 17th of Tammuz. I remember my, uh, my due date was like right around this time.